Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Well, hello there. How's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a weekly special episode where us content creators get to talk about the board games that we've been playing recently. And on this episode are... The Tabletop Bellhop. Definitely a board game podcast. The Meeple Dungeon. Dice and Dragons. And Cardboard Conjecture. And please remember to check out the show notes for the links to the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast. And, as I always like to say, go get a snack, something to drink, sit back, and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, answering your gaming and game night questions and striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. If you've got a gaming or game night question for me, send it to questions at tabletopbellhop.com, visit our webpage and click on Ask the Bellhop, or hit me up on social media where I can be found everywhere as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. Now the question I'm answering today is, what you've been playing this past week? Now, I don't have a lot to talk about this week, and that's mostly due to one game. And that game is the Tales from the Loop board game from Free League Publishing. Now, this is a board game based on the awesome art books by Simon Stallenhug that comes from the same publisher as the Tales from the Loop role-playing game that I was already a huge fan of. Now, this game was obviously created by fans of the role-playing game, as it shares a lot of the same mechanics and, of course, the same setting, including the Year Zero engine for dice rolls. Now, in this game, you play kids in an 80s that never was, where you start each turn going to school, and you have to make sure your chores are completed by the end of the week, all while investigating strange phenomenon caused by The Loop, a massive Large Hadron Collider that was built in your hometown, and which employs most of the adults in the area. Now, the game comes with a number of different scenarios to play, and you don't even know exactly what you're trying to do until partway through one of them and each has its own win and loss conditions. Now, Saturday night, instead of playing a few different games and then continuing our Charterstone campaign, we instead spent about six hours trying to figure out this game. Now, those hours were spent playing through one and a half games. Since about two hours into our first game, we realized we messed up some rules uh, really badly, bad enough that we didn't see a way to take back what we did wrong. So we instead restarted the game. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here as I don't have the time in the short segment, but let's just say this game is very fiddly and it is trying to do a lot at once, perhaps too much. Now, it really is trying to capture the open world and feeling of a role-playing game, but do that in a board game format. And due to that, there's lots and lots of little rules for all kinds of things that you don't just normally see in board games, including things like walking around town or taking public transit 
or getting a ride from mom and dad as long as they're not going to bring you to a restricted area. And as long as they're happy with you because if your parents are upset, they're not going to drive you around. But then getting driven around makes them a bit more upset. Um, you're going to explore open and restricted areas. You're going to try to avoid giant robots. You might try to hack those robots. You'll be investigating rumors all over the Malaran Islands. You can take your items and combine them together for special effects. You can hack those robots. You've got weekly chores you need to accomplish. Doing all this, you might become exhausted or stressed out, or you may even get injured. But no, no kids can get harmed in this game. Uh, there's no kids dying in this game whatsoever. Uh, you can even visit the video store, and being home on time for dinner is extremely important. There's just so much going on in this game. Now, the rule book read really well the first time. Like, it sounded fantastic. It sounded solid, like everything works. But we found it really hard to reference during play. Uh, the biggest problem being little rules being scattered everywhere. Now, here's a pro tip. Well, I don't know about pro, but here's a tip. Pay special attention to the sidebars. There is a lot of information in them, and they include rules that are not in the main text. Uh, specifically, pay attention to the staying home sick rule, because it took us forever to find that one. So, the four of us found ourselves stumbling around a lot with the Tales from the Loop board game. And we spent a lot of time flipping through the rule book, watching how to play videos, and reading the Board Game Geek forums. Which I will say, the Board Game Geek forums, the designer has been fantastic at answering questions. Now, what didn't help with this is that the rules have changed in a number of significant ways since they were first published with the, uh, the Kickstarter for this game. And there was a print-and-play version, which again had a different set of rules. And there's a Tabletopia version that you can play online that again doesn't match the rules in the finalized retail version. So what happens here is it becomes very hard to tell if a answer to a question you look up or a how-to-play video is based on the actual final version of the game or something older. Now, one of the most important rules that I know did change from those earlier printings is you used to have to spend a cube to help. That is no longer true. But I saw a lot of how-to-play videos that seem to be using the retail copy still using that rule, which I think is just a, a carryover from an older rule set. Now, I realize this sounds kind of terrible, but we've only played one and a half times. And while it's been a bit of a bumpy road, this game does do a lot of cool things that we are actually really enjoying. It really does give you the feel of playing a kid who has all kinds of kid obligations and lines like, sorry, I can't help you hack that robot this turn. I have to make sure I get the hockey practice, but then maybe tomorrow I'll have enough time. Like those are the kind of things you'll actually say while playing this game. Overall, so far, it feels like they tried to cram in too many different things to make this feel more like a role-playing experience or more open world that's going to be just too much for your average board game player. Now, for fans of the genre, right, the kids on bike genre, the Stranger Things, E.T., Goonies uh, feel, or Tales of the Loop fans from either the books, the role-playing game, or whatever, or possibly the Amazon series, which I'll admit I haven't seen, this could be a really cool addition to your collection. It is really different from many other board games out there. Now, that said, it's going to take a few more plays before I have a final verdict on the Tales from the Loop board game. I have a feeling we're going to really enjoy it once we figure out all the rules and get them all down. That's just taking longer than I would like. Now, after finishing Tales from the Loop, we did fit in one more game because by the end of it, we were all kind of burnt out. So we wanted to play something we already all knew the rules for and something we loved and which we wouldn't have to learn anything new. So we broke out Gorinto from Grand Gamers Guild. 
Now, I mentioned this on the show before, but it's been a while. Uh, This is still one of the best games in my collection overall, and probably the best abstract strategy game that I've played with four players. Now, there's some two-player ones I like a little bit more, but with four players, it's a fantastic abstract tile-placing, tile-drafting game. Now, this game, we decided to toss in the dragon tiles. These act as wild cards, meaning that you can use them as any element when claiming tiles, and when claimed, you can put the knowledge wherever you want. Now, one thing I thought that was interesting is we hadn't used the dragon tiles in the retail version. Now, we did a prototype and a preview of this game, and I used the dragon tiles then, but what's interesting is they changed the rules. Before, you had to take out one of each tile to replace it with dragons, which meant every game you used every tile, which means technically there's kind of perfect information there. Now they just say to toss the dragons in, which I got to say is much easier. I don't have to rummage through the bag trying to find tiles to pull out. And I honestly don't really think it hurts anything. Yeah, sure. Now you have 105 tiles instead of 100. But I haven't played Garinto with anyone who's taken the time to actually count every tile in order to know what's what the odds of a certain color coming out are. Or technically you could figure out exactly what's going to come out on the um, the path on the last round of the game. But no one I know does that. So personally, I'm totally cool with just tossing the dragons in. Uh, we also use the optional season scoring variant, which honestly, I, I think that should be the base way to play. Uh, maybe for your first couple games, just start with just two goals. But the rotating goals where every season there's two different goals up, I think is a, a much better way to play Garinto. Now, the final thing we did, and this has nothing to do with Garinto itself, is, is um, I pimped out my game table in a way, is I finally broke out the Lazy Susan I got when Geektropolis Cafe opened and sadly closed. Um, Garinto is one of those games where you've got a bunch of tiles in a center market that forms what's called the mountain. Well, being able to rotate that mountain was extremely useful to be able to see what tiles were where and just to see the board from a different perspective without having to like get up or move around. So that was pretty awesome. I'm expecting to get some more plays out. Like actually, I put the, the Lazy Susans on my game table now and I'm like, I'm kind of looking around my game room going, what other games would be better with a Lazy Susan? So it's kind of an odd way to get inspired to play different games or get other games off my shelf. So anyway, I'm glad I picked that up. It, it really did improve our game of Garento. Well, that's it for this week. That's everything I've been playing lately. I am looking forward to hearing what everyone else has been up to this past week once the other contributors get their content in. Now, before I go, just a reminder, visit TabletopBellhop.com. Join us on Wednesdays on Twitch at 9 p.m. Eastern, where we record the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, which you can find on your podcatcher of choice if you can't join us live. And I also invite you to check YouTube Sundays at 1 p.m. to see if we've gone live for brunch. That one's unscheduled, unscripted. We try to do it every week, but you know what? It's the one thing that if we are a little busy, we will cancel. Now, for the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop. Good day and game on. Royce Calverly from the Definitely a Board Game podcast, a podcast definitely about board games, except when it's not. And I want to talk to you today about one of my favorite games. A few days ago, I posted a tweet on Twitter that said that I had played Betrayal at House on the Hill. I love Betrayal at House on the Hill, but my responses were almost uniformly negative. I got a lot of people saying, why would you play this game? It's obviously broken. It's imbalanced. And, you know, they're right. It can be imbalanced. It can be broken. For those of you who have never played Betrayal at House on the Hill, 
This is a game where you are exploring a haunted house. You take either the little girl or the um, old man or the strong young man, whatever it might be, and you explore this house. And you don't know what you're looking for, so you're all going off in different directions. You're opening up new rooms. Uh, you have several floors, including the attic with the new expansion, the Widow's Walk. And as you open these new rooms, you find things. It might be items. It might be events. Scary things will happen. Strange things will happen. And every now and then, you're going to find a haunt. And haunts are the key to this game. When you find a haunt, you read that card out, and it's usually like something a little bit scary, a little girl ghost or, you know, a dog that suddenly appears out of nowhere or burning walls, whatever it might be. And then you roll some dice. And if you roll less than the total number of haunts in the game, we start the end game. And that's when this game really becomes interesting, because what happens is, depending on which haunt and which room it's triggered in, you're going to have a chart. And you look on the chart and you figure out, I'm doing haunt number 60. You look up the, the haunt charts, you have two books. You've got one for the instigator and one for everyone else. Yeah, this becomes basically a potentially a hidden traitor game where nobody knew they were the traitor. Or maybe it's a co-op, everybody against the game. Or maybe it's all versus everybody. It's anything is possible. And these haunts are like every single B-movie horror movie you've ever seen. Anything that you've seen in a B-movie horror movie could be there. It's amazing. It's so much fun. Just to give you an example, in our most recent game, we did a haunt where a larger-than-usual-sized cat by the name of Buttons had telepathically controlled the priest, Father Dave. Father Dave was opening portals to other dimensions to bring interdimensional kittens over to this world in order to take over the world. In order to stop Buttons from taking over the world, the adventurers needed to find the five ingredients that make up Button's perfect cat food. They had to mix it together properly, and then they had to find a way to soothe Button's to the point where Button's would eat this food and fall asleep and enjoy and forget his plans for world domination. Come on, how can you not love a game with a cat telepathically controlling a priest, bringing interdimensional kittens over in order to control the world. It's just amazing. I've never had a game that inspires stories, that inspires such a narrative that makes you feel like you are just <laughs> crazy. It's amazing. I love Betrayal on House on the Hill. It's a game that will never leave my collection. And despite all of the people going, why would you play this game? It must be popular. There's been several editions. There was a legacy version, and they've just announced that there will be a new third edition coming out. And this third edition apparently is going to have 50 new haunts. So I'm really excited. And yes, to all the haters, I know if the house happens to be set up in a way that doesn't work with that haunt, if it happens to the haunt happens too quick or the haunt takes too long, it's entirely possible that the scenario might not work or that there might be a uh, imbalance issue that will never scare me away. So I'd love to hear from you. Do you love Betrayal at House on the Hill the way I do or is it just 
too broken, too unbalanced. You can reach out to me at definitelybored at gmail.com, at boreddefinitely on Twitter, or at definitelybored on Facebook. I'm Royce Calverly of Definitely a Board Game Podcast, and I'm wishing you a very happy Wednesday. Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast. We have one game to talk about this week. What game is that, Anna Marie? That game is Suro, designed by Tom McMurchie, art by Shane Small, and published by Calliope Games. Yeah, Suro. So this is a game. This is a game uh, that was, uh, I think, one of a first in our collection when mm-hmm. we started really uh, getting into the hobby. So this one we got, yeah, we got this almost a long time ago, ten years ago or so. Yeah. And uh, we don't play it often, but every time we do play it, I really forget how good it is. Yeah, we brought it out um, recently again and played it with our youngest, and he really, really liked it. Yeah, so why don't you explain yeah. how this uh, works? I'm going to read just a little blurb. <laughs> um, it says, Suro, the game of the path. Since time began, the dragon and the phoenix have guarded over and guided the intertwining paths of life, maintaining the careful balance between the twin forces of choice and destiny. These two powerful beings share the noble task of overseeing the many roads that lead to divine wisdom. Through its masterful blend of strategy and chance, Suro represents the classic quest for enlightenment. And it's nice. It's it's. I like the way they kind of um, describe it as a dance. You know, it's it's a balance, and I don't know. It's a lot of fun. So basically, you have a board that's a grid. You've got. Yep. I'm not sure how big it is eight by eight, maybe something like that. Something like maybe that. Maybe ten by ten, eight by eight. Yeah. yeah, and every player has their own kind of stone, and you. Um, yeah, you each choose a starting point on the board. So in each grid so each square of the grid uh, each each line yeah of the grid is, on the outside has is, two different starting paths yes so you choose an unoccupied one from the other players and you place your your marker there yeah then like one by one you will place a tile and the tiles are all unique and they have um different designs on them so it can be a straight line a curvy line a um, a semicircle, you know, and basically mm-hmm. when you lay the tile down, you're going to take your marker from its initial spot and move it along that path, whatever path is connected to your line, and you move it to the end of where that path takes you. And then... Yeah, you'll move it on to that tile to the mm-hmm. very end of that connecting path. Yeah, and then the next person goes and the next person goes. What will eventually happen is your... You're moving your piece across the board as tiles get laid, but mm-hmm. as you intertwine with other people's tiles, you end up, your path intertwines with theirs and you can shoot out, you know, somewhere else. And the whole point of the game is you want to stay on the game board as long as possible. Right, because it's last uh, player standing. Yeah. Yeah, wins the game. Yeah, yeah. If, you're, if your path takes you off of any edge of the board, you're out. That's right. game over. <laughs> and you have, I think you have a hand of three tiles that you work with, and you can just select one of your yeah. hand to play down, and then you're going to draw a new tile. At right. The end of your, yeah, I forgot the key point. Round. <laughs> and so you're always going to have three tiles to choose from when you're deciding which tile to place down, and yeah, the, each tile is unique, and each tile has a whack of different uh, 
you know, tracks that you'll be able to lay down and shoot your rock over left, right, up and down, around a circle. And yeah. yeah, all these different areas. And you're just trying to keep your rock on the board as long as possible. And at the same rate, your tiles are going to start uh, connecting eventually with each other's tiles. And so if I put down a tile that connects a tile that you're on and I'm on, it's going to send my rock to wherever uh, your path leads. It, my path leads, but then it's also going to send yours on a, a wild ride, potentially. Right. So I can use that to my advantage, knowing, okay, if I put this down just like so, it's going to send me just over here, but it's going to send you way over here yeah. and potentially off the board or close to it. And if any two players, if any of their paths connect and they kind of run into each other, they're both knocked out of the game. Oh, right, yeah. Not even going off. If the two rocks hit each other, then they're both out of the game. Yeah. And, yeah, so it's lots of interesting things. So this is like an old, old old-style game. Um, And it just, you know, it's not chess. I'm not saying it's chess, but it's like an old-style game where it's simple. It's very simple. But um, it's difficult and, you know, full of strategy and tactics and, and such. But just laying down tiles and moving a rock around, it's really simple. But but I love with yeah, tactics. I love in this game how it's very versatile. So I was mentioning I, I we played it with our youngest son, and he just loves it because it's a quick game. It doesn't take a long time. So nope. His attention span, and he'll want to play multiple games of it. Yeah. And it's it just fun because it's it's an easy concept. Okay, I lay a tile and I move it. I lay a tile and I move it, and we can start showing. Okay, here's some strategy. Like, do you think it's your tile's gonna go off the edge of the board there or not? And and then it eventually is like, no, don't tell me. I want to do it myself. I'm like, okay, good. But I can have just as much fun playing with him. It's a two to eight player game. So I can have just as much fun playing a two player game with him as playing with eight of our own group, like eight adults all playing together yep. as a kind of a party game. Yeah. And it doesn't have that party game feel, but it can still. No, but it's a nice kind of. It's light. And yeah. you can be, ah, oh, no, you can still get that. Um, you know, that feeling kind of out of it. Yeah, it's kind of, I think, a very good game to kick off an evening yeah. um, when you have people kind of showing up at your house and you want to play something fun and quick and simple and easy to know. Easy to learn. Easy to learn, yeah, yeah easy to understand uh, that people can have a lot of fun with. Um, yeah, this is this is the game for you, for sure. They did an awesome job just on the components, too, and I touch on them, the, the little kind of your markers yeah. are nice, kind of looking like rocks. Yeah, they're very nice looking. And the rule book is just a nice kind of cardboard. Like a pamphlet. It's, yeah, and it's yeah. just very in and elegant. out. Yeah. Very elegant. The art is awesome. And they had like those little rice paper sheets on there, and they just, yeah, it's just yeah, really, it's really nice, nice. Nice production. It is. Simple um, and really, really nice, though. Yeah. yeah. No, we like Sir a lot. It doesn't come out often, but when it does, we we always enjoy it. But yeah. I think that's it for this week. Uh, check out our podcast. Um, last week's episode, we reviewed Radlands mm-hmm. from Roxley Games, and we will have a new episode coming out this week where we review another game. So we will <laughs> stay tuned. Uh, we'll see you there. Uh, take care. Cheers. See ya. What up, gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dyson Dragons, and you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram at Dyson Dragons, and on Twitter at Dyson Dragon. 
And what is it today, Julie? It's What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. And what have we been playing and what have we been doing? We've been making wine, so spoiler alert, we're playing Viticulture. How is that a spoiler? Well, I said it before I said the game. In any case, <laughs> it's a good game for me to be playing because it's about making wine. Well, I think it would have been more spoiler alert if you said we played Viticulture, here are our scores, and this is who won. That'd be more of a spoiler alert. But in any case, yes, a big thanks to Stonemeyer Games for sending it to us. The game is designed by Jamie Stegmeyer, Alan Stone, and Morton Monrad Peterson. Uh, this is the Essential Edition that was released in 2015. We've never played it. We got into board gaming a couple of years ago, and this one just didn't grab my attention at the time, but man... I don't know what I was thinking because we've had some fun playing this game. So what did you think of it, Julie? So it's a Stonemaier game, so that means, you know, as always, the, you know, the the production quality is great. I really like the meeples and the art. It's just really appropriate for, you know, old world winemaking. I just thought it's pretty uh, and uh, and I can appreciate that. Yes, well, you've actually been to Tuscany. Now, we do not have the Tuscany expansion. That's definitely something that's now on our list of things to pick up and play. And I really enjoyed the art as well. I mean, when I first saw, saw the game, it didn't really draw me in. But, you know, after playing it, I find that everything fits perfectly thematically. Really love the component quality. We've sleeved a lot of our Stonemaier games just to protect them because we do enjoy them quite a bit and this one actually has good enough components that I don't think sleeving is going to be necessary whatsoever. No I agree. Um, so I mean it's been a fun game. I've enjoyed playing it. Um, I enjoyed the first two games a lot. The third game for me demonstrated just how uh, card dependent this game can be. Uh, you're, you're basically uh, your resources are coming from draws of, of different cards for different types of resources and absolutely nothing was going my way in that last game and the opposite was true for you you were getting good cards great cards everything was meshing together perfectly for you and it made for a very frustrating game for me because it was just the two of us and that's that's one of the disadvantages to some competitive two-player games and and it came across a lot more in this last game um than than the others well i had a similar experience in the second game but i think for me it was mainly my strategy i ended up pulling a lot of really good uh vines to plant so i tried to just really get all three fields going and in a two-player game that's just a mistake it's not really going to get you where you want to go it can slow you down uh, especially as a lot of the board is blocked off and you only have one action space you can go to so it was very difficult to harvest let's say three fields in a turn but that's something that is very much possible when you're playing at higher player counts so your strategy is definitely going to be dependent on uh, the amount of players that being said you also got some really good cards so uh, you were playing very well that second game my strategy just completely failed and you were just crushing it with making the best of everything you got so i know how you felt i think though that you definitely had a harder time in that last game because you really struggled getting red wine which wasn't a problem for me in the second game i just wasn't my engine was taking way too long to get going. By the time I could fill potentially multiple wine orders at the turn, you were already, you were already at the end of the game. Yeah, I think the difference, as you said, between the sec, you know, our second game uh, and and the third one, the the, the si difference in situation was, I I didn't make any mistakes. I just wasn't getting any cards. Your strategy didn't pay off in the second game, and you were learning from it. 
there was nothing I could have done really differently except hope that uh, things would build up fast enough that I'd be able to catch up. But I just, by the time I could mitigate the situation and, and find a way around my lack of red red wine graves, it was just too late to catch up with you. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think you could have done one thing differently, but I think it would have hurt you a lot more in other aspects. You could have aggressively tried to like play, you know, multiple workers on the draw vine space to really find that red wine vine but i don't know how that would have worked out for you long run because you would have been getting lira you've been falling behind and i don't this is the type of game where you have to do a lot of different actions you can't just focus on one specific action until it actually pays off for you yeah so i mean in either whatever the case may be there isn't one strategy and and i think it's it's hev- it's more heavily dependent on different things at two players. I still think it's possible for that to happen at a, at a four or five player count game, but I think it might be a little bit more mitigated by the fact that you're, you're getting more cards exposed. So the chances of, of being of this happening when you're playing multiple players is probably less. Well, just when you take a look at a multiple player game, the amount of people that are going to be looking for vines and looking to upgrade their, their vineyards, you're going to have more vines going into more hands. You're going to have potentially two to three vines coming out guaranteed every single round, which is just going to make everything a luck lot Luck of the easier. draw could still make it that you still pick up those cards. I mean, it's a luck of the no, draw. True, but I'm luck. just saying, I'm just talking about mitigation. And as yeah. you mentioned, is that spreading it around across multiple players means that that level of cycling is going to give you a better chance of getting what you need. That being said, you're entirely right. And I'm wondering if in Tuscany you can actually buy grapes, which would be fairly interesting because that would have solved a lot of the problems. And I do think the game is very playable two players. I had fun playing it at two players. I think it's a game that we can still play at two players and have a good time with it, especially because setup and teardown is so easy. I do, however, find that it's not perfect at two players. No. So on that note, I think we've said enough about it. I would suggest that you can catch our full review coming out uh, the day after this. Yeah, and on that note, we're going to remind everyone to keep keep playing games. Well, hello there. It's Norm from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And this is the time where we get to have a look at what the community has been playing on the Bridge City Board Gamers Facebook page. So let's get started. Drake, working on printing parts and playing some Fallout, the board game. Oh, if I had a 3D printer, yeah, I'd be in trouble. I'd be printing minis all the time. Scott, lots of Marvel Champions and D&D. Yeah. Some secret playtesting. Uh-oh, not a lot else, but lots of Marvel Champions and D&D. Cool. You know what? The connection there? There's a lot of thematicness going on. Cool. Ryan. Let's have a peek at what Ryan's been playing. Juicy Fruits. Pokemon the, the card game. Right on. Juicy Fruits. I have not played that one yet. Um, uh, and uh, it's from, uh, I think it's part of that whole Capstone. I think it's the Capstone Family Friendly series. <laughs> um, and uh, Pokemon trading card game. Yeah, I think he's... I think he's uh, getting some family members hooked on his favorite hobby, and good on you. Tim, you know, uh, he's got a, uh, a blog, uh, February Games, let's see, going to click, on, he's making me click stuff here, crazy. Um, uh, I see some Wingspan, 
And uh, yeah, Wingspan, probably one of the best engine builders there. Some Splendor, nice, and uh, some For Sale. That is awesome. For Sale, I love playing For Sale on Board Game Arena because it is, uh, it is a, it's a tight little auction game and it plays fast. So you can get a lot of repeat plays. And in my case, uh, keep learning how to play better. <laughs> uh, Jason, just Sleeping Gods this week. Well, you know what? Nothing wrong with that because that, is, uh, that sounds like an awesome game. And uh, uh, Red Raven Games, the series of games they have in that universe is so fantastic. I just picked up uh, was it now and never? Yeah. And, uh, I've yet to, I punched it, put it into its compartments and, uh, I have to find some time to play it. So yay. Sleeping gods. Ah, I want to, that, oh, the, co the, bo the cover art looks so fantastic. Uh, Hans, Savannah Park, Terraforming Mars, Wreck Raiders, Tabanusi, uh, Tawantinsiu. <laughs> I apologize for that one. Council of Four, Newton, and Pendulum. Whoa, cool. Savannah Park. A lot of people have been talking about that one. Um, it's I think it's a bingo mechanism kind of thing. Uh, what, yeah, to, totally want to try it. A lot of people who uh, have the same kind of groove as I do in games uh, dig it. So, yeah. Terraforming Mars. That's a standard for you guys. That's, a, that's, like, a, that's like stretching exercise before you guys start your game night. Rec Raiders, not heard of it. Uh, the two T games, I'm not even going to embarrass myself. I want to jump straight to Newton. Uh, Newton, I love that game. If you love your Euros, yes, that's a good game to play. And Pendulum, have not played that one. We've interviewed the designer uh, back, uh, I think, in the, in the 20s of the episodes. So, nice. Jeff. Jeff plays some Marvel Champions, some... Oh, I'm not... You're going to make me try to pronounce this one again. Tawantins... I'm going to give up. Part of the T-Series. <laughs> Everdale. Or Everdell. It's not Dale. Dell. Everdell. Uh, Maracaibo. Yeah. Tabanusi. See, that one's easy for me to say. But I'm probably mispronouncing it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Everdale. I've not played it. A lot of people uh, uh, um, speak like great things about that game. Uh, the artwork is fantastic. I, 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 I'm not too sure about the big tree because I like, I'm a big line of sight kind of person. And to me, that uh, that's, looks like an um, unnecessary obstruction. But I'm just picking, right? So moving on, Sarah, Pandemic. Yeah, one of the, uh, one of the foundation cooperative games that spawned Alpha Gaming. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> the game didn't spawn it. It was already in ya. Michael just bought into Sky Tier and Destinies, hoping to get a few games in very soon. Destinies, yay. That is such a fun game. The, uh, the, the, the design team that came up with that QR code system, um, they, yeah, yeah, keep working it. There's so much potential in there. Uh, Marianne, I believe I'm looking at, uh, Marianne played Cat Lady and Cat Lady, we have that game. It's such a fun, um, uh, set collecting game and, uh, resource management because you got to have enough milk. <laughs> Cats like milk, bowls of milk. So there you go. Oh, wait, no, not there you go. One more. Garth, my family have had some fun with Wingspan, Space Base and Cartographers. 
Really enjoyed Cartographers. It has been at least half a year. Forgot how fun this little game is in a group. Also tried a solo variant of Space Base that was pretty fun. Nice! And then he says, goes on to say that he finished his Under Falling Skies campaign. Um, uh, <laughs> after, uh, after 14 months, I've gotten uh, what fun I can out of it. So he might, uh, you might be seeing that one on the, uh, on the trade list. And I finally got to try Race for the Galaxy. Yeah, Race for the Galaxy is, uh, yeah, if you've not played it, I think that one's on Board Game Arena, if I'm not mistaken. So a lot of that, a lot of these good games are, are, you can play them on Board Game Arena, and if you're hooked, if you like it, then go get the physical copy. So cool. That's a lot of fantastic games from the uh, Bridge City Board Gamers community. Well, I have had the opportunity to play a lot of Crokinole solo and I know what you're thinking. There is no solo crokinole. But there is, in fact, a, uh, a few websites out there that have trick shot series. And there's one, uh, um, I'm, I, I think I'll find it later and put it in the show notes if it's interesting. Um, there's a site that has, uh, every year they put out a kind of a thematic uh, trick shot series of 10 shots that, that to see how good you are. And uh, every once in a while, I like to bring up the sheet and, the, and set up the trick shots and see if I can do them. And uh, yeah, I mean, Crokinole, it's, it's the best um, dexterity flicking game out there, bar none. Every other flicking game stands on the shoulders of this giant, eh? And I'm only saying that because it's a Canadian game. I think it was designed in 1860-something in Ontario, a small little bedroom uh, a cultural bedroom community in Ontario, and uh, you, I mean, you see curling in there, and oh, <laughs> and if you see curling in there, and, and, and you're interested, in Saskatoon here, I don't know if they did it this year, I haven't, I haven't been out to see, but they have a thing called Croca Curl, where they take the idea of a crokinole board, and basically times a thousand, and, and it's the size, I think it's dimension-wise, it's about 40 feet wide, right? So you've got a 40-foot crokinole board, but you're using curling stones. Yeah, that's what I said, curling stones. So don't get in the way and don't get in between a ricochet because then you'll be uh, calling some professionals to come and assist you. <laughs> but yeah, crokinole, some trick shot stuff, having so much fun with that. But what we played last Wednesday in the Gamer's Garage was uh, Praga Kaput Regni, designed by Vladimir Suki and uh, published by Delicious Games. I, I, <laughs> first of all, I'm embarrassed to say, I'm proud to say we played it, but I'm embarrassed to say that it's been sitting on the shelf, unplayed, since, when did it get released here? Since 20s, for two years, it's been sitting there, waiting its turn, and patiently waiting to show me how brilliant this game is. Uh, if you like Underwater Cities, if you like Shipyard, if you like Pulsar, this, this game has all of that DNA of, uh, of, of Suki's design. And in this game, there's so many ways uh, and tracks that you can go and, and be successful and uh, uh, attempt, a, I, I guess, a victory point strategy. And, uh, it's, but it's one of those things that if you dedicate your, uh, your, your, 
your, your game to a strategy, then stick to it. Because if you start trying to do a little bit of everything, then the averageness will show in your score and you will have an average score. But those who have grokked the, the dynamics and the sequence and the way uh, um, all these bonuses are, are coming out, uh, they will definitely succeed. And I'm really digging... I just talked about the last... Uh, on the last uh, mechanic series, talked about the Rondell. And I did not... Uh, I mentioned Praga, but I did not um, talk about how much the Rondell is influential in this game because you're picking your... Uh, action tiles from a uh, uh, a moving rondelle, right? It's a water wheel, or it's you know it's a mechanical wheel from the Middle Ages, and uh, the the actions are part of the cog spokes, and they rotate around. And the first zone, if you want to take it from the first zone, there's a penalty. There is a I call it the sweet spot where you uh, there's two or three slots where if that action cog comes through there, there's no penalty. If the action cog goes through this space, then you uh, are into benefits um, because of you know neglect on a certain action that it'll start to accumulate interest in regards to its victory pointness. And uh, yeah, yeah, this ah man, I gotta play, I gotta tuck into the solo of this because uh, I played four player and wow, what a and it's not really a push and pull kind of thing. It's more of a pardon me as I go do my thing and I'll let you come you know, through and you can do your thing. And, uh, and uh, there's a lot of shoulder checking to see how successful other people's choices are in comparison to yours. And don't forget the end of game scoring. Okay. Um, yeah. And the eggs. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. Always, always bring eggs to the show. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. If you play this, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so yeah, had so much fun with that game. I can't say, uh, uh, I mean, I mean, one of my favorite designers, I think after I, I think when we did the designers favorite or favorite 10 designers that, uh, uh, I think Suki was on the bottom close number 10 or maybe even 11, but after playing this game now, Oh, top five, easy jump. This is such a fantastic game. I, but considering if you like that type of Euro game. Um, and, and what type of Euro game? Well, it has, as far as mechanisms go, um, there's like tiling, there's tracks, there's uh, uh, action selection. So, yeah, yeah. And there's not, I wouldn't say there's, no, there's, there's not any take that, but there's just that kind of polite nudging as you try to do what you want to do. So, yeah. Um, Praga Kaput Regni. I just love saying the name, too. Uh, designed by Vladimir Suhi and uh, published by Delicious Games. Well, that brings us to a uh, another uh, end of another episode. And as always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to what we have to say about what we've been playing. And uh, also, huge, huge thank you to all the content creators who uh, contribute to this special weekly episode. Can't do it without you, so thank you so much. And uh, that being said... Keep your stick on the ice and take care out there, eh?